Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you this week from Anchorage, Alaska. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Warren and I bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, the Texas-based ministry Gospel for Asia files for creditor protection in Canada. Also on today's program, a British ministry that believes that it's possible for homosexuals to change says that it has been the target of death threats. And we're going to begin today, though, with extended coverage of how the COVID-19 crisis is impacting churches and ministries and how some churches are pushing back on government restrictions. While this is not a new story for us here at Ministry Watch, there have been some new developments this week. For example, Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, made big news this week when it gathered indoors on Sunday defying California's regulations that aim to limit the spread of COVID-19. Yeah, the well-known pastor of that church is John MacArthur, and he told his congregation, this is a very special day in the life of our church family. It is for us a return to what we love the most, the fellowship of the saints and the worship of our Lord. MacArthur's church met in defiance of Governor Gavin Newsom's mid-July order that once again shut down bars, indoor dining, gyms, and, yes, of course, churches in more than 30 counties in the state of California. Additionally, restrictions for indoor religious gatherings also include a ban on singing. Chanting and singing negate the risk reduction achieved through six feet of physical distancing, according to health officials there. A number of churches have already sued the state for banning singing and chanting in places of worship, but permitting such activities elsewhere. There are lots of churches in California affected by these restrictions. So why are we focusing on John MacArthur's church? Well, in part because on July the 24th, MacArthur and the church's elders uh, put out a statement, and that statement was called the biblical case for the church's duty to remain open. Uh, And because it did come from John MacArthur and because it was such a clarion call, uh, it got spread all around the country. So that was one of the reasons it really got a lot of notice. MacArthur in that statement said, Christ, not Caesar, is the head of the church. And we've got a link to the statement on Ministry Watch website, but Warren, can you give us a few highlights? Yeah, the statement said uh, that God has not granted civic rulers authority over the doctrine, practice, and polity of the church. As his people, we are subject to his will and commands as revealed in Scripture. By the way, I'm quoting from the statement directly there, and here's another quote. Therefore, we cannot and will not acquiesce to a government-imposed moratorium on our weekly congregational worship or other regular corporate gatherings. Compliance would be disobedience to our Lord's clear commands. The statement went on to say, 
pastor's ability to shepherd their flocks has been severely curtailed. The unity and influence of the church has been threatened. Opportunities for believers to serve and minister to one another have been missed. And the suffering of Christians who are troubled, fearful, distressed, infirm, or otherwise in urgent need of fellowship and encouragement has been magnified beyond anything that could reasonably be considered just or necessary. Are you hearing similar concerns from others? Well, I am. A a new survey of Protestant pastors found that those from evangelical churches were the most likely to say that their church has already gone back to meeting in person. Though I should add that in many states, it's now okay to meet again in person. Uh, Last Friday, the U.S. Supreme Court turned down an appeal from a Nevada church which challenged uh, Nevada's restrictions on large public gatherings gatherings. And in Alabama, a week-long revival at Warrior Creek Missionary Baptist Church had to be cut short because 40 people, including the pastor, tested positive for COVID-19. Now, I should add that the pastor of that church, Daryl Ross, said that other than the loss of smell and taste and a couple of minor sinus problems, that he's doing okay. And so far, not one of the 40 that tested positive have been hospitalized. And in Colorado, there's a similar situation. Yeah, there there is. Officials in Colorado told ministry leader Andrew Womack, who we've written about before here at Ministry Watch, that he could hold an event up to 175 people uh, at his family Bible conference. That was back in June. But Walmack just ignored that guideline. There were about 800 to 1,000 people um, gathered at his Karis Bible College, which is up in Woodland Park, just outside of Colorado Springs. Officials were alerted to the crowd size and then responded with a cease and desist order. Womack disobeyed that and fought back, claiming that it violated his constitutional rights to shut the event down. He hired Liberty Council to provide legal representation. Now, fast forward to today, and officials are now blaming Womack for a sharp increase in COVID-19 cases in Teller County, Colorado, which is where Woodland Park is. 48 new cases since July the 3rd. Of those cases, 34 have been linked to that Bible conference. Okay, so what I'm gathering from all of this is that these sorts of situations are just busting out all over. What's your analysis of the situation? Yeah, well, I think uh, you're right. First of all, they are kind of busting out all over, uh, and a number of factors are in play here. On the one hand, it's clear that COVID-19 is real and that the outbreak that we're experiencing in this country is not over. In fact, just as we're recording this, I got news that Herman Cain has died of COVID-19. He's a former presidential candidate and former CEO of Godfather's Pizza. Herman Cain apparently got COVID at a Donald Trump campaign rally in Atlanta, which should be an indication of the risks involved in large group gatherings. But uh, we're learning a lot more about how to treat the disease. Many areas, such as my home state of North Carolina, seem to be past the peak. There are news reports saying that we actually peaked here in North Carolina in mid-July. So we're no longer in danger of overloading the hospitals. We're also learning that from the point of view of society as a whole, the cure could be becoming just as bad as the disease. 
isolating people in their homes does slow the spread of COVID-19, but we're now getting evidence that it rapidly speeds the spread of depression and related consequences, including domestic abuse and suicide. And that doesn't take into account the long-term economic consequences of adding $3 trillion to our national debt to pay for COVID relief, plus the cost of having millions of people out of work for months. And for the Christians, there are additional concerns. Well, there sure are. We're commanded, as John MacArthur said, to gather regularly for uh, worship. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together is the clear command from Scripture. Uh, Christians are also commanded to love our neighbor, and a lot of Christians believe that this should include keeping our neighbors safe and disease-free, of course. Um, But you know, how are we going to get balanced these views of of getting together, worshiping together, being engaged in service, but also uh, slowing down the spread of this disease? And these are very tough questions. Yeah, they, they really are. And I've got to say, Natasha, if I could just add a kind of a personal point here. Um, Herman Cain, who I just mentioned, was someone who I knew. Um, I, I've had a lot of interaction with Herman Cain over the years. So his death of COVID-19 has been a little bit of a surprise and shock to me coming today. And just as a stark reminder of how serious the disease is. On the other hand, some of our listeners may be familiar with Mike Adams. Uh, Mike Adams is a University of North Carolina at Wilmington professor, a well-known pro-life speaker. He speaks a lot at Summit Ministries in Colorado. He committed suicide. Uh, last week. And I have very little doubt. I've known Mike for a long time. We've both been speakers at Summit Ministries for a long time. I have no doubt that if Mike Adams had been at Summit this summer, that um, he would have gotten the support and fellowship that he needed um, there, and he wouldn't have been as isolated in his home, which I think was probably a major contributing factor um, to his suicide. So you've got you know, kind of these warring factions here of, um, you know, isolation and the and the damage of that and the economic consequences, but also the very real physical and health problems associated with the disease. Um, so, you know, we humans aren't designed uh, to be in isolation one from the other. And the longer we keep ourselves in isolation, I think the more of these kinds of consequences are going to start showing up. Yes. Yeah, it was so tragic to hear about Mike Adams. I always enjoyed visiting with him when he came to Summit. Now, Warren, I'd like to point out that not all of the issues related to COVID and ministry are so tough, though. And we have a story on the Ministry Watch website this week that, if possible, brings a little bit of humor to this situation. Yeah, you know, that's right. And they're starting, in fact, to call uh, the First Baptist Church of Nova Soda, Texas, the Barbecue Baptist Church because of its innovative ministry approach here in this COVID era. Uh, It began when one of the pastors of the church, Chad McMillan, uh, allowed himself to be pulled around town on a trailer that was being pulled by a truck. Uh, Pastor McMillan knew that there had been a toilet paper shortage created by the COVID-19 crisis, so he got one of those T-shirt guns, like the kind that you'll see at sporting events, and instead of putting, you know, balled-up T-shirts in the gun, he started shooting out rolls of toilet paper to the people that he was encountering as he was pulled around town. Well, that sounds like fun. 
Well, it was. In fact, people responded so favorably uh, that he added to that trailer a pulpit, a sound system, and even a piano uh, so that he could hold pop-up worship services all the while while he was flinging toilet paper out using that T-shirt gun. In fact, he started adding so many features to the trailer that he joked that the only thing that he lacked was a barbecue pit. Well, why not? Yeah, exactly. And that's when Barbecue Baptist Church was born. Barbecue Baptist Church is now an outreach of First Baptist Church. Uh, it aims to bring a warm meal, a little bit of levity, and a reminder that people care for others, both in the community and beyond. In fact, the church borrowed a catering trailer to go along with the trailer that they were sort of assembling there. And they made an announcement that anybody that wanted to invite them to their house, uh, they would come with the trailer and they would do a short worship service and give them a free barbecue meal. So they just started getting calls from all over. Sometimes it would just be a couple of people at a house. Sometimes they would gather folks from the uh, neighborhood or extended family. They would sometimes be uh, in front of as many as 20 people. Uh, Sometimes it would be a single elderly woman on the front porch. And that was so successful that they've taken this show on the road. Uh, They went to Nashville last month. Uh, McMillan said that they have traveled to six states across the South, and they've so far smoked nearly 1,000 pounds of pork uh, for this Barbecue Baptist Church effort. You know, there's an old saying, Natasha, that you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. But I guess with the rest of the pig, you really can make a lot of barbecue and make a whole lot of people feel appreciated and loved. Oh, that is such a great way to end this first segment. Now, when we return, news about a major Christian ministry, Gospel for Asia, that has had to file for creditor protection in Canada. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you this week from Anchorage, Alaska. And we'll be back right after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, up next, Gospel for Asia has filed for creditor protection in Canada, claiming fallout from the coronavirus and lawsuits in the United States and Canada have led to declining donations. Yeah, the charity filed for protection under Canada's Companies Creditors Arrangement Act, or CCAA. Now, it's a little bit different from American bankruptcy law. It's uh, This creditor protection is kind of a, a step before bankruptcy. It allows corporations to restructure 
their financial affairs with a formal plan of arrangement and hopefully potentially avoid a bankruptcy. The, the court filing says that the charity has collected about $2.5 million in donations during the first six months of 2020. Now, that compared to $7.7 million in donations in Canada last year, so barely a third of what they collected last year. The ministry lists about $8,900, so less than $9,000 that it owes to creditors. Well, that doesn't make much sense, Warren. Why would a ministry that owes so little need to file for protection from creditors? Well, it's a great question. Gospel for Asia says in the filing documents that it needs protection, not because of the $9,000 that it owes, but because of a $37 million lawsuit over the misuse of funds that was settled last year in the United States, plus the possible financial repercussions of a pending class action lawsuit in Canada. Now, the Canadian case was filed by a plaintiff named Greg Zentner. He's from Nova Scotia, and he alleges that more than $100 million in donations were mishandled by Gospel for Asia. That case says that the charity solicited tens of millions of dollars in donations from Canadians who were told that the funds would help the poor in India. But instead, some of that money was used to construct what the lawsuit says is a luxurious headquarters in Texas, and that Gospel for Asia kept millions in reserve funds and foreign bank accounts as well. Okay, well, that makes sense. And that is a huge amount of money. Yeah, it is. Um, During arguments in the United States lawsuit, Gospel for Asia, in fact, did admit that it did take about $20 million of the Canadian donations to pay for the Texas headquarters. Uh, Greg Zentner, again, the plaintiff in the Canadian lawsuit, has asked the Canadian courts to require Gospel for Asia to refund that $20 million plus add $150 million in punitive damages. And this has been a long struggle for Gospel for Asia. Yeah, the organization was removed from the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability in 2015 after a review of its accounting procedures, some of which we're seeing rehearsed again in these lawsuits. Now, our next story involves a ministry in Great Britain. It's a ministry that works with people who have unwanted same-sex attractions. Yeah, you're right, Natasha. A British Christian ministry has been targeted with death threats because of the stance that it has taken for traditional marriage, a biblical understanding of marriage and sexuality. The ministry is called the Core Issues Trust, and it says that its mission is to support people who voluntarily seek a change in sexual preference, Uh, and it also says that it's received death threats on social media and that some companies are refusing to provide business services after the ministry has been falsely associated with conversion therapy. Conversion therapy is, um, is a controversial form of therapy. It's much in the news in Great Britain right now because the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson called conversion therapy abhorrent uh, within the last couple of weeks. That statement has apparently been one of the reasons that public attention has been directed towards the core issues trust. 
And in addition to death threats, the ministry has faced the termination of services from key vendors. Yeah, Mike Davidson is the CEO of the Core Issues Trust, and he said that there's been a coordinated campaign that has resulted in our ministry coming under immense pressure and key service providers canceling their service. He said, for example, that MailChimp and PayPal have declined to work for the organization and that Facebook has been censoring posts from the group. Uh, Davidson went on to say that he thinks this is nothing other than mob rule. If a social media mob can cause a bank to close the account of a Christian ministry, then there is nowhere for biblically faithful Christian ministries to go. Right. I get that. But you mentioned earlier that the so-called conversion therapy has been quite controversial. Yeah, it, it is controversial. But Davidson said that his organization has been caught up in a misunderstanding, that the term conversion therapy is being used as a catch-all phrase designed to discredit anyone who wants to help others that have uh, same-sex or mixed sexual attraction but prefer uh, heterosexual um, relationships. Uh, this could include, for example, according to Davidson, a listening ear, formal counseling, or spiritual support. So it's not all what has been labeled conversion therapy. Now, Warren, before we go to another break, let's look at a story unfolding back in this country. Confederate symbols have come under scrutiny lately, and one conservative church in South Carolina has taken this moment as an opportunity to deal with some of its history. Yeah, earlier this month, one of South Carolina's flagship churches, in fact, published a statement of contrition and repentance regarding its past over uh, the issues of slavery and race. Now, in that statement, by the way, we have that statement, a link to that statement on the Ministry Watch website. First Presbyterian Church Columbia senior pastor Derek Thomas condemns the views of past leaders who condone slavery and affirms that all people are made in the image of God. He also said that the church's session, which is what they call the body made up of the 40 elders in that church, have unanimously agreed to remove the names of two Confederate pro-slavery ministers from their buildings. Now, this is happening in a lot of places, so why is this different? Yeah, well, for one thing, First Presbyterian Church is a church that has been long one of the most influential churches in the South. It's um, maintained its fidelity to Scripture, though, and Orthodox Christian theology, while other also old and established churches have moved towards liberalism. So this declaration is not coming from a so-called progressive or woke church, but from one that actually holds to the authority of Scripture, that Scripture is inerrant. Now, what else can you tell us about this church? Well, First Presbyterian Church, uh, Columbia, was founded in 1795. That makes it the oldest church in Columbia and one of the oldest churches continuously operating in the entire country. Uh, the church and its accompanying graveyard are both on the National Historic Register. The tombstones there memorialize ministers, physicians, judges, merchants, legislators, even university presidents, soldiers from the American Revolution. I mean, this is a really historic place. Martha Thomas Fitzgerald, the first woman elected in a general election to the South Carolina House of Representatives, is buried in the graveyard there, as well as the parents of uh, former U.S. President Woodrow Wilson. 
Now we're going to have to take another break, but when we return, the next installment in our Generous Living series. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, Warren, we're now a couple of months into Ministry Watch's Generous Living series, and I've got to tell you, these stories have been really inspiring and sometimes very challenging. Who do you have for us today? Well, the story for today is the story of Renee Lockie. Uh, Renee says that she used to equate freedom with control. The more control she had over her life, the more freedom she could experience. Uh, she was, a, I guess you could say, a hard charger. Uh, she would, excelled in school. She became a doctor. And by the time she was in her 30s, uh, she had accomplished a whole lot of the goals that she had set out for herself earlier in life. But she was also finding that the kind of fulfillment that she had hoped for was missing. Now, I should also say this about Renee. She's an avid runner. And she said that it was on one of her runs that she came to the realization that she was not fully sold out to God. Now, one of the things that struck me about this story was the line, and I'll quote it, I decided I wanted to work like a doctor and live like a nurse. Yeah, that's right, Natasha. And she says that that line came to her while she was running and praying. And of course, she didn't mean that nurses don't work hard. Of course they do. But doctors earn typically much more money. In fact, in Austin, where she was living at the time, uh, doctors were on average earning three to four times what the average nurse made. So Renee said, what if she lived on the salary of a nurse, not her doctor's salary? That would allow her to give away large sums of money. So that's what she did. Yeah, it is. She downsized to an 800-square-foot home, and she said that she now no longer wants to save enough money to retire early because she's got a newfound love for her job and is able to spend more time on medical missions trips. She, In her words, why retire from something that you love? And if you're going to keep working, why save up huge piles of money for retirement that could be used now to bless other people? That's such a great attitude. Yeah, it is. And I got to tell you, Natasha, that there's a whole lot more to her story. I, I found it really fascinating and thought Christina Darnell did a really great job of telling it. I recommend that story to you as well as all of the previous stories in our Generous Living series. 
Now, Warren, we need to be wrapping up. Do you have any final words before we go? Well, yeah. First, I want to remind uh, everyone about the new essay on our Ministry Watch website about Matthew 18 and how it relates to journalism and the kind of investigative work we do here at Ministry Watch. That that uh, article has proven to be pretty popular. Folks are passing around, and I'm really grateful for that. So if you're a supporter of Ministry Watch or maybe you're a skeptic, not sure if this whole watchdog journalism thing is the right approach, I think that you'll find that article helpful. And once again, it's at the ministrywatch.com website. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Sedith. Writers who contributed to today's program include Christina Darnell, Alejandra Molina, Ann Steich, Steve Raby, Emily McFarlane Miller, Sean Hendricks, and Warren Smith. And thanks to our friends at Religion News Service for contributing materials to this week's program. I'm Natasha Smith in Anchorage, Alaska. And I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. May God bless you.